Welcome and happy Friday. This is Travelogue, the podcast of Kanye West Traveler. I am here in the studio with Aaron Florio, who's an editor for Traveler. And we are the only ones in the studio. Everybody else is calling in. And we've got on the Skype, we have Cynthia Drescher, who's a writer and editor for Traveler. And she's coming to us from South Korea. And the reasons for that are probably apparent to you, but um, we'll make them more apparent shortly. And we've got Mark Elwood, who's in an undisclosed location at JFK. Mark, is that where you are right now? (laughs) I'm at the Virgin Clubhouse at JFK. So if you hear a boarding announcement, they're not fake. I am really at an airport. I picture the Virgin Lounge must be just a constant party. Do you know, I wish it were that fun. I'm normally here in the morning when no one is drinking. I think it might get a little rowdier later on, and I'm kind of excited to see it. It is There is free champagne, so, they, you know, I might make use of that later. They have free spa treatments there too, don't they? At the Virgin? No. They, what? Not in New York, only in London. Oh, oh unfair. Again. <laughs> no, they need to bring that across the pond. Deeply unfair. Uh, Mark is, of course, a contributing editor and a writer and a podcast producer for Traveler. My name's Brad Rickman, and the first thing we have to do is wish Mark a happy birthday. Uh, his birthday was on Monday of this week. Happy, happy birthday. birthday. Thank you. I'd blush if I had any shame, but yes, thank you for the attention. Um, <laughs> and you are also on your way right now to another birthday party. Your 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 father's having a birthday. Is that correct? I'm going to take my dad out for my parents out for my dad's birthday. So it's very nice. We when I lived in Britain, we used to be able to combine the celebrations, but now I have to fly for them. But it's worth the trip. Where are you going to take him? I'm I'm just going to take him out for a very expensive lunch and hopefully feed him enough wine that he'll need a nap in the afternoon. Oh, excellent parental treatment. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He doesn't need to be forced to do that. That's really quite. He's quite willing. He's quite a willing participant in that. So we so this is uh, uh, the beginning of the Olympics, and that we have Olympic fever around here, as many of you do. And I think a great place for us to start is um, with Cynthia, who is actually in Seoul, as we mentioned. And Cynthia, I'm super curious as to what it's like there right now for you. Well, I'm still in Seoul, so I haven't been out to the actual you know Olympics area yet. But I came in. Uh, like 12 hours ago on the nonstop Delta flight from Detroit on the A350. And it was packed with Olympians from other countries. So I don't know if they were connecting in Detroit or I don't know what was going on, but everybody was in their kits. You know, like there was Ukrainian athletes on the plane. There was Italian. I know the Americans flew out on a United flight like a couple hours ago. So I don't think there are any Americans on there, but support staff was packing. Like it was a totally full flight. Everybody had a ton of gear that got me excited, you know, like, I felt like, okay, I'm doing this. I'm on my way. I'm making this happen. This is my first time to an Olympics. And uh, I know Seoul pretty well, but I've not been outside of Seoul, so I'm excited for that. But the big news here in at least Seoul right now is the fact that norovirus has broken out among the security guards. I saw that earlier today. And they've, yeah. So there were, I think, 1,200 security guards who were confined to their rooms while they were being tested. And, I mean, luckily, like, it's only really support staff who's out there right now. None of the events start until Thursday, which is, what, is that tomorrow? I've I've lost Uh, track of what day it is right now. Well, you're (laughs) you're ahead of us, so it's, for for us, it's Friday. For you, um, it's going to be 12 hours before that, I guess, right? Or 14 hours? Erin, you know this. I should know it better. Yeah, it's around 12. Yeah, the events start even before opening ceremony. So I'm Mm -hmm. going to events on Thursday, even though I'm not going to the opening ceremony until Friday night. Ah, okay. It's, it's kind of more of a formality, the opening ceremony. Uh-huh. You know, I guess everybody pumped for the rest of the games, but there's still like serious, you know, metal qualifying events happening on Thursday. 
And so what was the mood on the plane? Were people kind of excited and festive or was everybody super serious? It was pretty serious. It was a 14-hour flight, so people were serious about getting sleep. And I was pretty excited because for all of the meals, I was flying in economy class. Like, I redeemed Delta miles to get, you know, because the flights are kind of expensive to Korea around the Olympics. I was like, I'll just throw all my miles, whatever. And for every meal, they had a Korean option. So, like, I did bibimbap for dinner on the way out, and I had kimchi fried rice for breakfast. And I was like, oh, yeah. And um, I know that those options ran out right away. So I don't (laughs) know if... You know, if it's just <laughs> like everybody's just kind of in the mood. That's nice. It means everybody's you know, it in the mood like, for Korea. Right, right. And in Seoul itself, what are the manifestations? What's the mood like there? I arrived at Terminal 2 here at Incheon International Airport, which has also been in the headlines lately because it only opened two weeks ago. And it's now the home for the Sky Team Airlines, which is Korean Air, Delta, KLM, and Air France. So everybody listening, if you're coming to Korea, well, from now going forward, not just for the Olympics, and you're flying one of those four airlines in the Sky Team Alliance, you're flying into or out of Terminal 2, which is a good 25 minutes bus ride around the airport from Terminal 1. So don't, don't go to the wrong terminal. Yeah. <laughs> it was a long bus ride. Hey, what's your, um, what's your 30 second review on that? Well, I only arrived, so you don't get to see that much. I mean, departure is the cool thing, but they're very you know, digital technology focused. There's going to be a lot of self-checking kiosks and ways to, you know, circumvent having to deal face-to-face with people and delay your travel. So, you know, it's just about smoothing that process, but I haven't gone through that yet. Okay. I will on my departure though. So in another week, All right. but, um, but it does have, and I'm sure terminal one has this as well. And this is the biggest Olympics manifestation I've seen so far is they have a dedicated immigration lane for Olympics participants. Mm. So when you're coming in, they've got it marked on the floor, you know, like an expedited lane that has all the little cartoon mascots for the games. And it's only for people who have their official like accreditation, but it's for media, it's for support staff, it's for teams, it's for coaches, it's for security guards, setup crew, whoever, caterers, whoever's coming in. That way they don't have to wait in like the 40 minute long immigration line that I did today and they can get all the way out to, you know. They could get on the high-speed train out to the Olympics area as soon as possible. So you couldn't use your journalistic uh, identity to get into that special fast lane? <laughs> I did think about it, but I don't have <laughs> anything on me. You know, like, I'm just here for fun. I'm here with my, like, Korean-American friends who have helped me get all these tickets through, like, you know, Korean-language-only back channels. <laughs> so I don't have anything to show for it yet. And all my tickets are digital, too. So, Mark, you've covered Olympics yes. for us before. What are the kinds of things that one thinks about when you're going to an event like this? What do you try to prepare yourself for? The best piece of advice I got was when I was standing in the line at Sochi Airport waiting to go to what everyone would say would be such a kind of, you know, terribly organized games and wasn't. And a veteran Olympics goer said to me, oh, you're so smart to come for the second week. Anyone who's been to more than one Olympics knows never come for the opening ceremony, come for the second week and the closing, because by then they've ironed out all the problems. Don't be the guinea pig. Let everyone else have problems with their tickets. And by the time you're using yours for the second week, everything will be fine. And that, I thought, was the cleverest piece of advice. I will say, I'm like Cynthia. I think it's, I'm no sports fan. I couldn't care less. But you know what? The Olympics are 
magical. And I challenge anyone to remain cynical or disengaged from an Olympics. There is something intoxicating about the joy around it. And it's quite apolitical on the ground, whatever there might be around it uh, before the Games. I think when you're there, there's just this lovely sense of people trying hard and hoping to win. Forgive the neophyte questions because I've never either been or covered it. When you're there, are you mingling with athletes from around the world as well as just spectators? Or are the athletes sequestered and you just are there with journalists and spectators? Or what's the feeling when you're there? That's a great question, actually. You're not mingling with them. They are sort of in back of house. It's a bit like having a giant concert and, you know, you're not going to hang out with the Rolling Stones before they perform. They're right there for you. The Olympic parks are enormous. And remember, lots of people go to the Olympic park just to have dinner or to hang out because there's plenty of, like, food and beverage. And what struck me was that a lot of local people used in Rio, in London, in Sochi, used the Olympic parks as a kind of fun night out, whether or not they were going to the events. So you're not hanging out with the athletes, but you are getting a snapshot of local culture and it's a lovely place to just be. It's also logistically, always remember those Olympic parks are never right in the center of anything. Pyeongchang will be a little different because there's three cities hosting it. But in Sochi, in London, and in Rio, they were kind of a journey. So you also, you can't exactly pop in. You commit for a few hours and hang out there and then commute out. So I think that's the other thing. People are there for an extended period. They're not just like popping in for a quick coffee. Yeah. So what kind of spotlight can we shine on Pyeongchang? The world is about to focus its attention on this place that a lot of us had never heard of before it was announced that the Olympics would be there. Um, it's obviously, it's about, what, 90 minutes um, outside of Seoul? It, with the new fast train, yeah. Now it's 90 minutes. It used to be a, a three-hour drive at best around these really scary mountain roads, and it would actually put off a lot of people trying to get there. So it's made it easier for everybody. It is, it is an established, unlike somewhere like Sochi, which was largely picked as an Olympic Games venue because Vladimir Putin loves it and his summer house is there. Pyeongchang is a winter sports getaway if you brave those roads. It is much more like Vancouver in, in that way, right, Aaron? Um, yes and no. I think, I, think the, I think we have to sort of like set the proper scene. I think it has been established... The, Skiing in Korea was founded there in the 1970s. Before they started their first commercial ski field there, there was no such thing as commercial skiing. Japan had a scene, Korea didn't. Um, and it gained a lot of popularity, especially with expats that were living in Seoul in like the 80s and the 90s, who sort of had this lust, you know, and this, this, this desire to go skiing. Um, so they do have these resorts and they do have the infrastructure, but they never quite... And I haven't been there in, in a very long time. I learned to ski actually in Pyeongchang, which is which is weird to say. But uh, they <laughs> no were just, way, yeah. that's yeah. amazing. I know it's, we- it's weird. Um, Yongpyeong and all these resorts where they're having the events, or you know, where me and my family would go skiing in the eighties and the nineties. But um, it doesn't have the established like scene that you're going to get in like Sapporo or something. It's it's good infrastructure and it's 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 convenient and they operate efficiently, but I think until this year, really, it wasn't sort of like the scene you get in Vancouver. Now, you compared it to Tahoe, to if Seoul is L.A., yeah. you know, this is Tahoe. Um, because that, I mean, it was the place where people with money, if they did want to have an outdoors adventure, were going, you know, and so it serviced Seoul that way. And it's, yeah. still, it's still like that, and it's going to be even more so after these Olympics. And, you know, it's great in winter, 
But I think the really exciting part about it and what most Koreans used it for was actually the coastline. Like it's wonderful. That was fascinating. That was fascinating. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because there's winter surfing there. I've never seen it and I've never done it, but it looks absolutely epic. So if you go farther east from where Pyeongchang actually is and you go farther into the province, which is called Gangwon province, they have really great swells that are coming in from the Sea of Japan. And the water temperature never gets too cold. You're still going to be, you know, full kitted in your wetsuit top to bottom. But it's maybe like 45 degrees and it's created this winter surf scene because the swells get really high in the winter because of the winds. And if you look at the pictures, it's like these beautiful mounds of snow covering the beaches and then the ocean is just filled with surfers and you have these like snow covered islands out to sea and it just looks so incredible. So it's, it's yeah, it started gotten a little bit of a cult following for that. That's kind of amazing. I, I couldn't believe it when I read that. How about you, Cynthia? Are you have you got sort of um, a map for your time there, or are you just going to be winging it? What's your strategy when you head up there? I'm totally being um, shepherded around by my friend's family. <laughs> <laughs> I like I said, I've never been outside of Seoul, so I'm kind of letting them steer this. Although I did buy my KTX high speed train tickets, which are I think like thirty five, the equivalent of thirty five dollars each way, which is not bad for no. the time it saves, like yeah. only like an hour and a half. Yeah. And we're staying in Gangneung. You're going to have to forgive my horrible pronunciation, but Gangneung is like the terminus of the train. So it's past Pyeongchang, but it's the largest city around there. I think it's the capital of Gangwon province. And so we'll be around, you know, normal stuff. We're not going to be out in the middle of nowhere. We'll be availing ourselves of the free buses between the different events. And I'm excited to learn more about the area. And I'm also pretty psyched for this thing that they're going to have where, um, you know, it's kind of like an expo, I guess, in that they have these um, other buildings that are specially built for the event. And one of them is this British architect, Asif Khan. He's going to coat a building in Vanta black. You know, the black is oh, black. Wow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he's going to have like points of light in it. So when apparently when you walk towards it, it looks like you're descending into space Whoa. even though you're just walking towards like that's a so building. cool that's amazing yeah so this is the only place i'll ever get to experience vanta black for now yeah. you know <laughs> so i'm yeah so i'm excited for things that aren't just the sports events there's all these other things happening in the whole region but can, can, yeah, anyone, I don't, can anyone answer me i love you point brought this up cynthia can anyone answer me why are olympics mascots so ugly and creepy why do they never make mascots? Hey, hey, like hey, when, hey, hey, hey. I reckon the when, ones from Korea are nor... They're tigers. They're not like a blob. Yeah, they're I haven't cute. seen them. What, they're are cute. They, are they, they're are they weird they're white tigers, and they're to accompany, or they're to complement, I should say, the, the orange tiger from the Seoul Olympics in 1988. Huh. If yeah. you look at Wenlock and Mandeville from the Olympics in London, if you gave a child that <laughs> oh, dog toy, it would be a nightmare generator, not a sort of cuddlesome memory of the Olympics. And they were really ugly and sochy as well. I just don't understand who designs an ugly stuffed toy. Well, How can I'll, you I'll do back that? You up. I'll back you up on that. The ones for Turin in, what, 2006? They were they were terrible. And wasn't they were it, weird. Wasn't Atlantis yeah. called, like, the thingamajig or something? Wasn't it's that just, like, called it was the like, the, the ones from Turin, it was like an animated ice cube. It was the strangest thing. <laughs> How do you make a stuffed toy that kids don't want to cuddle? It's sort of an achievement, and I just don't understand how at the Olympics, the, every time I wanted to bring, I was in Beijing, and there were little pandas there, but even then the pandas were kind of creepy versions of pandas. So I don't understand that. I just don't understand. That's an yeah, achievement. I think the tigers, 
The tigers here are really cute. Mm -hmm. You know, they're all over the place. But if you want to see them, like right now, open up Instagram and go like you're going to make an Instagram story and go to the new GIF option or GIF, however you pronounce it, you know, your preference, and type in Olympics. And the first results are all of the Olympic white tiger mascot in different poses and with little, you know, Korean sayings <laughs> coming out. So you can, that's, oh, no, I'm so funny. psyched to add him to all of my Instagram stories. <laughs> I just want, I want people listening. I wonder if any of the listeners can, can tell me how these get designed. Why are they so creepy? And has there ever been an Olympic mascot you wanted to cuddle? And if so, please tweet it at me. I'd love to know. We will report back on that um, if yes. people do actually answer this question. Cynthia, do you know what events you're going to? I absolutely do. I've been stressing about this for like two weeks with my friend, kind of figuring out what we can afford because they are not cheap. I mean, some of them are cheap, like the cross country. Um, no, the biathlon's pretty cheap. It's twenty dollars. <laughs> but I mean, what are you yeah. going to see? You're going to see someone cross country ski past you really quickly. You know. <laughs> Um, The most expensive ticket we have is obviously the opening ceremony, which our ticket level is $800 per person. Wow. And that's relatively affordable on the scale. But I've, look, I'm chalking it up to doing this. This is like, you know, YOLO, right? So, but other than that, the other events we're going to, we've got ski jumping, curling, figure skating, snowboarding, cross country skiing, luge. I'm super psyched for that. The ski jumping should be fun. I already said, yeah, that's like my top two. And more curling. I think we're going to see curling twice because it's only $40. But I was going to say, Cynthia, I would be, when I was in Rio, I didn't, I didn't, because of the way my schedule worked, it was very hard for me to pre-plan any tickets in Rio because of the work that I was doing for Traveler. And I ended up grabbing tickets to the men's 77 kilogram weightlifting. Now, (laughs) I couldn't tell you the rules of weightlifting if there was a gun to my head and I had to do it on pain of death. But I ended up seeing not only this wonderful, unexpected victory by a Kazakh who no one thought would win and who did this crazy little dance and it was delightful, but I also saw a guy kind of break his arm as he was weightlifting, which was really kind of distressing. But again, was one of the memorable things of Rio. And I stumbled on that. And I just would, I bet you'll find that all the things that you kind of have just bought a ticket to because they were cheap enough will prove to be just as memorable as the things you're anticipating. And I think that's another thing to think about the Olympics. No event is wasted. You will be amazed what you'll enjoy watching in that context. And and what about you, Mark? Do you have a set list of events that you're going to cover? No, I, again, because my schedule is, is a lot of filming, um, I've been waiting to lock all of that down. And those look like they are locked down. Please tune into the Today Show where we'll be doing lots of segments talking about Korean culture. Uh, but now I've got that locked down, I'm going to see what I can get. I will just buy whatever cheap tickets there are. I don't care. I just want to sit and be surrounded by Olympic gloriousness. I'm very jealous of the opening ceremony tickets, though, Cynthia. I think that'll be worth every penny. Well, I'm going to be your guinea pig, though. I'm here on the first few days. So I'll let you know what goes wrong. <laughs> I, I'm sure nothing. It'll be Korea. Korea's beautifully run. I'm sure that will be the exception to the rule. Even though I'm here so so early in the games, we're scheduled to do we're scheduled to attend two medal uh, events. One will be the ladies' three thousand meter speed skating, and the other is the men's hill individual for ski jump. So that'll be cool. Aaron, what do you think? Do you think, is this going to do what is often hoped 
for Olympic locations and set Pyeongchang up as a as a destination? Ooh, that is a really tricky question, and I've been thinking a lot about that actually the past few days. Um, I want to be optimistic and say yes, um, but that but I have to attach a tiny little asterisk go to that, on, and I on. think it has to do more less with Pyeongchang and more with Korea as a whole as a destination. I'd love to see more people going to Korea. And branching out from Seoul, and I think just like in general, that's just a travel habit we want to see more of with travelers that are going to Korea. They think it's all Seoul, and I certainly think that this will encourage people to view it as maybe the adventure tourism tack-on to their city trip to Seoul. And I hope that happens, um, but we'll have to see. I'm very optimistic. Certainly, people are going to see what the what the quality of the mountains are like, what the quality of facilities are like, and those are left after the after the uh, mm-hmm. Olympics are gone. So mm-hmm. they've so even hopefully. landscaped. Sorry to interrupt. They've even landscaped certain ski mountains specifically for these Olympics, which obviously they're intending to maintain yeah. after the Olympics are but over. I, so. I mean, I, I will I will say, Brad, I think that's a very good point. Not every Olympic games leaves a legacy if you look at what rio and sochi the legacy they left for their respective cities they haven't been slam dunks those olympics facilities have been left to rot in a lot of ways whereas the london olympics have been repurposed into housing all the things you would hope so he is hoping that the amenities that have been put in to sort of the pyeongchang area become something that can be used rather than they sort of start rusting away. Because if you look at the images of Sochi, it's heartbreaking. I mean, I feel like the high-speed train at least had to have been, at least schedule-wise, had to have been um, connected to the Olympics. And so that will certainly remain, and that will also facilitate people getting out there so that if you're coming to Korea and visiting Seoul, it will certainly make it easier for you to get out there and take a few days. Yeah, I think that's a positive thing, if nothing else. Um, okay, so speaking of Seoul, I can imagine that many people will be visiting for the Olympics. That's the prompt for their visit. They're going to go through Seoul. Seoul is one of the great cities of the world, and I think it's one that we all feel, certainly I've never been, but I would really love to go, and I think we all feel like has been building a certain amount of momentum in the last few years. obviously been a major city for many years, but I think attention has started to ramp up there. What can we tell people about Seoul? Um, What is exciting about Seoul as a destination these days right now? Oh my God, it's that is uh, so many things. There's so many ways to answer this question. I I think there are so many reasons why we want to travel right now that Seoul kind of taps into. First of all, everybody loves Korean food. I mean, Korean food is today what sushi and Japanese food was in the 90s. I mean, you, you will get on the plane to eat the best galbi and to eat the best bulgogi and to have the best kimchi. And of course, you're going to find all of that, if not in Seoul, then at least in the regions around Seoul. Um, they have the most amazing, the city has the most amazing shopping scene. Like it's just from old to new to designer to Korean labels and Korean labels, even, you know, in America, in New York and in labels are some of the hottest labels to get these days. So it's really dominating in the fashion world. And it's this, the, the beauty tourism there is another thing you think you, you know, you Beauty tourism is sort of not quite wellness tourism, but it's starting to become a little bit of a trend. And I mean, Seoul just completely 
they own that. They own all what of the beauty. beauty what is that? Break so that down a little bit. It can be deconstructed in a few different ways. Uh, you can go extreme, and beauty tourism is about getting your nips and your tucks and your nose jobs, mm-hmm. cosmetic surgery. But it's also as simple as going to buy your beauty products and get spa treatments. And it's also medical tourism. A lot of people will take a plane and cross borders to get a uh, full medical examination, which is kind of more I mean, wellness if- than beauty. If I had come back with like, if I had come back looking ten years younger, I feel like I'd fail. Oh my god! Like and you will have career. Yeah. It's I, I mean, I walk around with a face mask on any time <laughs> I'm not filming. I'm just gonna be wearing face masks after face masks, and you guys can call me on it. You can say, Mark, you look amazing, or Mark, you need to go back to Korea. They have vending machines the way we have vending machines of Coca Colas. They have vending machine of sheet masks. I think that's all you need to say. They're winning that one. <laughs> they're definitely winning <laughs> that one. You stick in the dollar or the one thousand won or whatever, and you that's get a sheet amazing. mask. Cynthia, what are you most excited about with Seoul these days? Okay, I have to agree. I'm very into K-beauty, which is the Korean cosmetics and skincare. I do not care about it so much in the States, but when I come here, I like go crazy buying stuff. And I already went out last night and I like so much stuff. And I'm traveling carry-on I'm having a problem keeping myself away from the large like face cleanser bottles and stuff. But one of the hot things, I don't know if I'm so into this, but I feel like I should mention it because Seoul is very up on trends. So whatever's happening here is like two years in advance of what we can expect in New York. (laughs) And so, you know, you've heard about like snail, the snail mucus stuff that was like really hot for beauty products. And that's so over here already. Now they're onto horse oil, which is controversial. It's a byproduct of the horse meat industry. But um, (laughs) it's really gaining traction here. Here come the hate tweets. Yeah, right. I'm not. Be I'm careful not what you say. For it. Do you I'm like, advocate, do you I'm play like neat horse oil? How does it work? Is it like in a serum? Is it in everything? Does it smell of horse? What's it like? There's like one oh, product, and it's a cream, and it's. I mean, it's being marketed by several different, you know, a, a range of companies, but it all kind of looks the same. It's in this orange container that looks vaguely of an Hermes package, <laughs> and it's not like crazy expensive, but it is. Um, uh, uh, like a face cream that has a fatty, like horse oil has a fatty acid structure that's similar to that of human sebum. So it like uh, all of these words. <laughs> I don't even know what that <laughs> is. I feel like so I need a medical degree on this podcast. Yeah, it <laughs> absorbs better, <laughs> and it's um, really stresses like um, it. It helps with hyperpigmentation. It's a scar lightener and like a face brightener, and I don't know. I haven't tried it. But um, that's just what's happening here. When you go shopping in a Korean department store, how comfortable do you feel sort of trying things and grabbing things and being helped out? Because I do think there's a different there's a different culture of service and a different interaction. Do you let them slather everything on you that they, they want to? I mean, yes, obviously they encourage you to try everything, but they're not putting it on you. There's all these little fancy applicators for you to try it on your own. You're totally free to do whatever you want. And I'm all up in everything, let me tell you. I come out of there like <laughs> slick to the nines on my face and hands. <laughs> but uh, they do stick, like the sales associates stick close by you and they sort of form a bond as like your personal assistant while you're in the stores. So it's not that they're watching you, you know, they're not like suspecting you of shoplifting or anything, but people who are more comfortable shopping solo and, you know, keeping to themselves might be uncomfortable. And 
um, yeah, I, I don't have a problem with it because usually they're holding the basket for me and I just dump things in it. But the this- brilliant thing too is that you can go into some of these massive like beauty emporiums in Seoul and you can dedicate easily two, three hours being in there, getting around all the different floors. And Cynthia, I'm right in saying that quite often on either the top floor or the bottom floor, they'll have like pop-in spa sort of areas where you can get a foot rub or get a facial if they have an appointment available or something like that, right? So you can sort of like take a break between your beauty shopping. Oh yeah, they're living in the year It is so exhausting there. to do the beauty shopping. <laughs> it is. <laughs> no, but this raises oh. something that you and I were talking about, Aaron, which is like, mm-hmm. I feel like the encouraging you to do whatever you want to do in terms of trying things on, there's this tendency that we were talking about to conflate Seoul and Tokyo, right? And to feel like they're sort of a swap in mm-hmm. for each other. And that strikes me as something that, you know, not that I have tremendous amount of experience, but that would never happen in Tokyo, right? Like there's a whole different set of rules around how something like that happens. And there's, I, there might be a protocol, but it wouldn't be that protocol. Yeah, I think in general, and Cynthia, I'd love, and Mark, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I think in general, uh, the etiquette is just a little more relaxed in Seoul across the board. I mean, oh, yeah. uh, Tokyo, mm-hmm. just Japanese culture in general, It's there's a rigidity to it. Mm-hmm. It is so relaxed, laid back, do what you want. Be drunk at 3 p.m. in the middle of the day. That's all good. You know, that type of approach to being out in Seoul. And it's kind of refreshing, especially because it's Asia and you sort of feel a little bit like it should be more intimidating than it is. Um, that's, that's what I've found. Cynthia, what do you think? Oh, yeah. I completely agree. It's much more laid back than Japan. And obviously, comparing Korea and Japan is a bit of a no-no. But, you know, coming from the U.S., this is, you know, a lot of travelers have been to Japan and they know it. So they're coming from that knowledge base. And I do want to stress that it is extremely safe here as a solo female traveler. I love coming here. I have never felt unsafe. I walk down alleys at night, you know. (laughs) Obviously, I use my intuition before I enter them. But uh, it's just... So in the future, I don't know. I feel, every time I'm here, I feel like I'm experiencing something I could never get for another couple of years in the States. Yeah, it's in the future and it's fun and it's just, this, it's really relaxed and it's really laid back. And to Cynthia's point about it being safe for female travelers, um, English speakers, it's actually easier to go to Seoul than a lot of other big cities in North Asia because uh, a lot more English is spoken. I'm not going to say it's spoken everywhere because it definitely isn't, but it helps a lot more. And I think it's spoken a lot more prolifically than it is in Beijing or Tokyo. I will also say, don't you think that Korea at the moment, I, I've got, I've downloaded the birth of uh, Korean cool, Unikim's book uh, to read on the plane over to kind of prime me. But I do think things like K-pop and K-beauty, Korea has gone from being a sort of distant futuristic metropolis to being somewhere that keeps burping out stuff that we pay attention to far more. And I think it's so, I think the connection is much more visible and palpable than it was even maybe 10 years ago. Or am I, is, is that just my ignorance show? No, I think that's totally true. I mean, I think especially, uh, I don't know what the listenership for K-pop is in the U.S. However, I know that the culture of K-pop has affected us in terms of fashion um, and and even the beauty thing. But I also think that 
uh, it, we hear about a lot more, like you said, I mean, with people like Unikem, I mean, I, I hate to bring this up and I'm, I'm hesitant to do so, but, you know, don't underestimate the soft power of Gangnam Style, that song that, <laughs> that was everywhere a few years ago. I mean, it really did establish an idea of soul in the minds of people around the world that wasn't there before that song came out. Okay, but, okay, this is a chance to get even a little bit more kind of tactical with this. Like, Gangnam is a neighborhood in Seoul, right? Yes. And... So I think, you know, you wrote about this for us a little bit, Erin, and I was curious, one of the things that struck me about Soul Reading, what you wrote, uh, your 72 Hours piece, was that, yes, we think of it, and I think of it, I'll speak for myself only, I think of it as this place where the future just keeps kind of like finding new ideas and these things. And I, I think of, of the tech industry that's there and I think of the, the, the sort of pop culture manifestations and they are always sort of ahead of the curve in a certain kind of way. But at the same time, you wrote about a lot of uh, one of the things that I think intrigued me was the presence of ancient cultures and the presence of, of, of some of the shrines and some of the temples. And that mixed in with all of those other uh, influence, all of those other energies uh, seemed really interesting to me. And Gangnam seemed to be one of those places where that am I am I wrong? Am I remembering that? incorrectly? So Gangnam has uh, certain more traditional elements. They do have Buddhist temples. Uh, they do have a few UNESCO sites in the neighborhood. But really why you're going to Gangnam is for the modern, the Gurugasil, which I think is the main shopping boulevard. You're going for the modern is why you're predominantly going to Gangnam. But you do bring up a good point. And I think a lot of travelers overlook the traditional aspects of Korea that you can find in Seoul because they think they're going for the spa and the K-beauty and all the shopping. But right in the center of Seoul, I mean, they have this beautiful complex of palaces and beautiful old Buddhist temples where you're going to see traditional Korean architecture and painting. Um, you're going to see a lot of the traditional Korean garb that are still being worn by the palace guards. And that's right in the middle of Seoul. And it's all really easily walkable. And like I said in the piece that you referenced, it's completely worth spending at least a day going to explore it. You don't have to go far to find it. And everything is really accessible. Yeah. And it's really cool to see. It's yeah. really cool to see because I think it's a side of Korea that people don't immediately think about. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to also ask you guys to talk a little bit about the division that the Han River creates between north and south. Lots of cities have sort of rivers running through them, and that creates certain, um, you know, we think of Paris, um, we think of London, the mm -hmm. south and the north of the Thames. What does that mean in Seoul? Um, so there's a saying in Korea that north of the river is Europe and south of the river is America because north of the river is where the earlier settlements were. That's where you're going to find the more traditional homes and houses and these village-like neighborhoods. You're going to find the palaces. You're going to find the Buddhist temples. And then, you know, Gangnam is south of the river and south of the river is where you're going to find the sweeping boulevards and the places to go shopping. And it's not to say that doesn't exist north, because that would be wrong, because the Hanamdong neighborhood is north, um, Dongdaemun is north, but sort of as a general characterization of the two cities that is separated by the Han River, it's north is Europe and south is America. Cynthia, what is your sort of hit list when you go to Seoul? What would you suggest well, people see? I'm in Cognum right now. That's where I'm staying. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually staying in the hotel from Sai's Cognum style video where he does the <laughs> elevator scenes. Oh, wow. Those are my hotel elevators here. I hope, yeah, you've, you, I hope you've posted that to Instagram already. No, I, <laughs> literally, I just got here. I have like a whole list of things I have to do before I leave for Pyeongchang. <laughs> but um, when I'm here, I like to go. I have never been to Itaewon, which is where people tell you usually not to go because that's 
where the expats and the military families go to have, you know, American meals, foreign restaurants are there. So if you'd want to have like the local experience, you do not go to Taiwan. You go to Insarong, which has like this beautiful shopping village called Samsikul. And it's an outdoor shopping mall that has these local uh, Korean food vendors inside of it and little artists and craft boutiques and there's a cafe on the roof of course it's freezing here so <laughs> i don't know if i'll be doing that today but i also somewhere i am going today that i also love to go is bukchan hanok village and that's one of the old style what well, it's not just old style it is old like it's an, a historic center in seoul with the um historic houses and the way that you know People used to live in individual rooms with screens that separated them with a garden outside of the like little family estate. And the Hanok village is full of tea houses and small boutiques. And of course, you know, like corner places where you can get ice cream cones, <laughs> oddly enough. <laughs> like they did but, 700 years ago. <laughs> I, yeah. <laughs> right, 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 right. So I love Insadong. I love Bukchan Hanok village. And then just to like throw myself into this culture, I like going to Myeongdong and I highly recommend that. That's a neighborhood that's um, just down from the Ensoul Tower. And it's got everything you've heard about. You know, it's got every single K-beauty line has a store there or like six stores in some cases. They've got the, um, the Korean version of Uniqlo, which is called Eight Seconds, but spelled with the number eight at the front. And I mean, they also have Uniqlo too, but whatever. But go try Eight Seconds. And they have, you know, like four level Starbucks's and then next door they'll have like the Korean knockoff of Starbucks. And it's just, um, oh, and all the street food stalls are there at night. So you can go have tteokbokki, which is the rice cakes in a spicy red pepper sauce. And you can have fresh pressed sugar cane juice, fresh pressed lemonades. Um, my favorite thing, which is called hotak, which is a, it's described as a Korean pancake. But it's a sweet treat that's filled with a brown sugar syrup. Oh, oh my god, it's so good. Mark, is these, and, are these I mean, the they pan- have these. Are those the pancakes you were looking forward to, Mark? Yes, they are. I'm just, I'm so hungry. I haven't had dinner, and Cynthia, this is exquisite <laughs> torture as I sit here waiting for dinner. I'm so. Uh, this is, I, yeah. I think I, I will say that, you know, I loved the last time that I went to Korea, I loved the food on the plane. I love it is one of those cultures that you forget how much you already know about the food. So it's very approachable because you've probably had some Korean food and then you get to deep dive. And I'm literally just salivating as Cynthia keeps talking like that. So thank you. And also, I hate you. Let's break the food down just a little bit for people. What are the things that you really just have to get? OK, well, I hope you brought your antacids. Just going to say that because last time I had tteokbokki like twice a day for seven days straight and I left with horrible heartburn. (laughs) But uh, my number one, which is kind of odd, is called sanakji and it's the live wriggling octopus. And so you go to the fish market. Wait, 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 Cynthia, you you don't actually eat that. Oh Uh, Oh my gosh. Wow. Wow. So I'm impressed. Yeah, it's uh, um, there's. A Japanese film called, I think it's called Old Boy. No, it's a Korean and film. This is, there's like a, oh, it's shoot, from I, Korea. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's a very famous. I should have known that. Yeah, you in yeah, trouble yeah, now. Like the hate tweets really just double. Yeah. <laughs> very good film. There's Everybody a should see. Terrific scene where he like eats a live octopus in a bowl, you know, and and but the one that I'm talking about, uh, Sanakji, is when you go to a fish market and there's like a, a bucket of tiny octopi octopuses. 
whatever. And you pick out one or two, and then you also pick out some fish. Like I usually get flounder and a couple other things. And you go upstairs, you take your catches upstairs, and they prepare it all for you with a you know like a table full of side dishes, and they chop the oct- octopuses like right there, and they're still wriggling, and they bring them to you with like sesame oil, and and you take your um this the metal chopsticks that they use here in Korea and they stick to the chopsticks and you have to you have to swallow them well you have to chew them really well because if you don't chew them well they can stick inside your throat yeah that, that, that's <laughs> what I was gonna say they they've been known to kill the poor soul that's trying to eat them because they stick to their throat okay right all right I'm all about the fresh food. I'm all about the fresh food. But that seems a little extreme. Like, why Why do they have to be just killed? Because that's fresh, right? Don't you go to the God. sushi market oh. in Japan and get the tuna that's, you know, just been just been sliced? Yeah, but it's, it's not still stuff. swimming in my mouth. True. <laughs> I don't know. It's a novelty thing. And the best place to do that is the Norangjin fish market. There's a couple other fish markets, but this one is comprehensive. And um, they're, you know, they're not strangers to foreigners walking through and pointing and asking questions. All right. That's great advice. So check that out. People will actually listen to you and help you out. What else? I know that there are sort of lots of things people in the U.S. are familiar with. Are the representations, I think about this a lot with, um, with respect to Italian food, are the representations that we see here are they accurate? If you eat Korean food in, you know, New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Chicago, in the United States, do you have a good idea of what you're actually going to eat there? Um, for a few, I can only speak to a few dishes, but I would say obviously the galbi is better. But yeah, it's a fair representation, wouldn't you say so, Cynthia and Mark? Yeah. I mean, I think yeah, galbi, I mean, galbi, the 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 meats that you barbecue, I feel are done relatively. You know what you what to expect when you get to Seoul, and it's relatively on par, and also kimchi. Seems pretty on point. Oh, yeah. We don't have an Americanization, yes. we, Americanized version. There, yeah, you, it's it, the it Korean sort of version. It is what it is. Mm-hmm. What is galbi? Galbi is the beautiful, most delicious barbecued short rib. And if you have not had galbi, have it for dinner tonight, please. Because it's so good. It's one of the tastiest things you can eat. And for the completely uninitiated, mm-hmm. not that there are any of those in our listening audience, but if there were, What's the difference between that kind of barbecue and the barbecue you might be um, familiar with from the U.S.? Um, so, oh, uh, there's many, many differences. First of all, the barbecue is done at the table from a different type of heat. Um, it's a really hot heat over a really This is all just a torture grill. mark, by the way. This yeah, is- I'm, mark, I'm, I'm sorry. Just sitting Even here. I'm, I'm like- sitting here. In silence because I'm just trying <laughs> to eat my hand. I'm literally, this is brutal. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, but at least you'll be in Seoul soon enough and you'll be able to eat it. Exactly. I'm just that's what I'm focusing on. That's what I'm, keep, keep going, keep going, um, keep going. It, it's served with a ton of side dishes called banchan, which you can sort of add to the meat or you can eat separately. It's sort of up to you how you want to use it. Quite often it comes with lettuce wraps you can put your meat into and all these different sort of sauces and hot sauces and, and different pickled things like daikon and kimchi. And, and there's a lot going on on the table, but usually it's a cut of meat. It's cut very small so that you can sort of eat it in a few mouthfuls and they'll barbecue it for you at the table and it has different marinades and it's just absolutely delicious. Is there a noodles culture in Seoul? Um, there, well, there is, I can't speak at length about it, but my favorite is the japchae, which is the glass noodles. And they're absolutely delicious, and you can eat them hot or cold. And oddly, I think they're better cold, but um, 
you know, to each their own. But yeah, Jop Chair, they're glass noodles. Cynthia, what are your favorites? Other than uh, the live octopus. I, well, I just told you about Sanakji, but uh. there's this culture of late night eating here, especially in Seoul, where the idea is you go for dinner with your friends or your family, and then you go to like a norebang, which is like a karaoke house, or you go hang out somewhere else, you know, whatever. But then you also go to a second place, which is where you have beer and fried foods. And one of my favorite things is called tokebi, tokebi and it's essentially a corn dog, but instead of being coated with, you know, breading, it's coated with perfectly browned French fries. What? So imagine a corn dog if it was That's coated amazing. in, yeah. It's, it's, and it's amazing David like, Chang has had I, this I was on gonna, like every. I agree, <laughs> and I was going to say, it's amazing that like an American fair in the Midwest and conceive of that dish first. Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen that. That sounds amazing. Uh, I feel like I should, I'm going to be dying. The crinkle cut fries or, or like tater tots. Yeah, so you're going to. Um, gonna have to be hitting the gym quite a bit after you visit Seoul, but but then um, so after you eat the beer and the fried food, everybody gets quite drunk, and then you go to a third place, which is where you eat things to sop up that beer, and so you have things like mayak kimbap, which are I mean I guess the closest cousin is sushi, but it's kind of filled with like pickled pickled things and rolled up in rice <laughs> and you eat it and it kind of soaks up all the beer that you just drank two hours before, and then by your by the time you're done with that, it's four a.m. Speaking of beer, let's talk about the drinking because I did not know this until I, I started looking into it for the podcast, but soju is the most um, biggest selling spirit in the world, more than vodka. Really? That I is didn't news know that to either, me. Brad. That is news That's to me. Amazing. But considering how much I know the Koreans love to drink, I'm not surprised. <laughs> I hope I'm right about that. Somebody will fact check me if I'm not, and we'll get more hate tweets. But it was in one of the pieces that was actually on Traveler. It may have been a piece from 2014 or 2015. So perhaps something has accelerated past soju. But I'm, I mean, there's no doubt that it's incredibly popular around the world. And like, I mean, and the Koreans drink it like water. I mean, I was speaking to one of our colleagues, Diane, who uh, is actually Korean and has spent a lot of time over in Seoul, obviously. And she says, you know, at, at lunch at 2 p.m., you could reasonably bring out a bottle of soju and it's perfectly acceptable. What kind of liquor is it? What's the sort of uh, origin and flavor profile? So traditionally it's made from rice, although you're get, as it becomes more prolific and more mass produced, it's starting to be made from lesser products. I think tapioca is something that they're making it from these days. Uh, but traditionally like sake in Japan, it's a rice, it's not a rice wine, but it's a rice liquor. And the way Koreans drink it is they'll get their round of beers or whatever it is that they're drinking all night long, and they'll always have bottles of soju on the table to accompany whatever it is they're actually drinking. So it's they've got their drinks, let's say it's a beer, and then they've got their soju, which is sort of to accompany the drink. Oh, that's interesting. Right. So you have beer and soju. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's a chaser. It's a permanent chaser, isn't it? I mean, there's always like a soju chaser, whatever you're drinking. Yeah. Yeah, you, you you will you will punctuate your meal or any sort of social sitting with shots of soju all the time. This is feeling more and more like my kind of country between the bold food and the, <laughs> like a beer it's and, a, it's a and lot some of liquor. Fun. It's a lot uh, of fun. <laughs> so I was curious from a practical standpoint, if you're going to Seoul, what's the hotel scene? What's the Airbnb scene? What's the what's the lodging scene like? Seoul has some great hotels. They've had a few new openings this year. They've got a new Le Meridian in Gangnam, which is apparently phenomenal. I've not been over and seen it, but it's great. And they've got, you know, all the big players. They've got Banyan and they've got the Hyatt. But 
I would say look into the Airbnb options in Seoul as well. I don't know that the hotel rooms are commensurate with the demand at this point. Um, and I think that I've seen a lot of news about new openings coming in the future. I think that's because they're realizing there's more of a demand. But try both. And also, the cool thing about getting Airbnb in a place like Seoul is you could potentially get into one of those old traditional style homes, which is a cool experience to have in the city in and of itself. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've done it. Yeah. It's, oh, you um, have. Yeah. I've stayed in the Hanok village, which is kind of, I wouldn't recommend it in the winter. <laughs> it's cold. But I've also spent a week up in Myeongdong in an Airbnb. Oh, yeah. Airbnb is completely doable in Seoul and even outside Seoul in the Olympics area outside in Gangwon province. I was just reading that last year that province hosted around 2,700 international Airbnbers and just during the Olympics they're already on course to hit 2,400. So in just a couple weeks, they're going to hit the amount that they did for the entirety of last year in Airbnb bookings. I would say that anywhere outside of Seoul, you want to prioritize Airbnb. Really? Yeah, honestly, I think in terms of infrastructure in other parts of Korea, they have some hotels. Um, they're not going to be at the standard that maybe you would expect, uh, with maybe the exception of Busan in the south, but prioritize Airbnb and then look at hotels secondarily. I want to follow up on that for a second, but before we leave Seoul, you mentioned, and I saw in a bunch of other sources, a kind of day spa culture. I didn't really understand what that was about. You seem to speak of it as if it were a sort of trend or a thing that you do. There's a sort of culture around that. Yeah, I mean, it's going back to what I talked about earlier. There is, beauty tourism is not just about the sheet masks and the creams and this weird thing with horse oil that people are now apparently buying. <laughs> <laughs> it's also... Uh, clinics um, where people go and they will book themselves in not just for sort of a head-to-toe overview of their health and get sort of different dietitians to recommend things, but you can go and have these amazing day spa experiences where you're getting these state-of-the-art. I mean, we've all talked about already how Korea lives in the future. I mean, the technology they're using, like the laser facials that you can get in Korea are what we might see five years from now in, in New York City. Um, and you can go to different massage rooms and you can have just sort of top to body wraps. The whole day spa culture is alive and well and very affordable. And so I'm not going to say it's cheap. I think you can go to some of the better ones and get maybe $500 for a day. But I mean, if you're willing to throw down the money, you're going to have like a state of the art facility and it's going to be easier than what you get here. And is that like $500 for a massage or is that a multifaceted treatment? Ooh, you could do multifaceted treatment. I mean, that could be maybe a half day at the spa, but it could also be there are certain facials I've heard of and I can't remember the names of them, but there are certain facials and treatments that you can get that will, will probably cost you that much money. Mark, have you got your day spa lined up? <laughs> it's so funny because I get my face blitzed an awful lot in New York using Korean <laughs> machines. But I've never actually gone to a day spa in Korea. I'm much more I'm I'm much more interested in in the department store culture. I have to say, I get quite impatient about things like day spas. As vain as I am, I'm very lazy, and they're just I you know I'd I'd rather sit in my hotel room and and pamper myself. Mark, the department store culture here is very real, as I'm sure you know. But <laughs> the duty free. The duty-free shopping is on another level. Like, I've never seen it like this anywhere else in the world. They have perfected the art of duty-free shopping. Really? Oh, I didn't pay much attention to that. That's interesting. I must do that because I always think duty-free is terrible. So are you telling me that I should actually not run through the duty-free shop and, and ignore it? 
you don't even, the thing is, you don't even do it at the airport. It's, you do it weeks in advance of your flight. It's insane. <laughs> There's malls here that have entire floors, especially I'm thinking of the, the main Lotte Mall. They mm-hmm. have entire floors that are dedicated to duty-free shopping, and they're here in the center of Seoul. So what you do is you you know have your ticket information for your flight, and you can go up to these floors, and they have everything from like Korean foods, you know, prepackaged foods to lots of luxury products. So if you're mm-hmm. planning on buying a new Chanel bag or like a new Tom Ford, anything, even, you know, as small as a lipstick or something, you go there and you shop in the branded boutiques. The only mm-hmm. difference being that you're not leaving with the products that you purchase. You you basically look at samples and you buy them and you give them your flight and your passport what? information. That's amazing. Weeks, I didn't know later, that. That's incredible. Crazy. Yeah, weeks Weeks later, you pick it up at like a dispensary at the airport, there and it's go. ready to go. It's packaged for your flight. That, that is, is clearly living- something that could never happen in oh the United States. Like, never. oh no, no, <laughs> that is amazing. That is living in the future. Yeah, totally. Um, well, so you'll have you'll have locals here who need to go buy some expensive alcohol to give as gifts, or you know, if they just want to buy a new bag, well, they'll book a flight to Fukuoka in Japan, which is the closest place. Mm-hmm. And they'll do their duty-free shopping, take the flight, come back with the stuff that they just left with. <laughs> uh, oh really? That's it's brilliant. That's amazing. Okay, so what are the places people should think about going that are outside of Seoul? So if you are heading to South Korea, what's the broader picture? The city I mentioned earlier, Busan, is the second biggest city in Korea. It's on the coast, so you can actually use it as like a a, a a city beach escape, but sort of has this Barcelona meets Miami kind of vibe going on, uh, which is really cool and kind of welcome after a week or something in Seoul, which can be quite suffocating and quite intense. And it has awesome food and awesome art. And it just has this sort of hipster, sort of second city scene that Seoul just doesn't have. And it's really easy to get to from Seoul. I mean, I'm, I'm going to act on the assumption that everybody's jumping off point in Korea is always going to be sold. It's about two, maybe two and a half hours on the train, which means, you know, you can leave in the morning, be on the beach by midday. And the beach, the beaches have these great, you know, pop-up bars and and these like pop-up tent culture where you go and you sit around these communal tables and you down beers and you eat great food. I mean, it's probably similar to what Cynthia was talking about with this amazing, you know, fried hot dog, uh, French fry situation, but uh, more seafood because it's on the coast. And it's just really fun and it's just a really nice sort of change of an urban scape from what Seoul is. And there's also a lot of traditional sites which are accessible from Busan as well. So you can stay in the city, go to the beach during the day, and the next day you can wake up and, you know, take a short cab ride and be at these beautiful big Buddhist complexes and go for hikes through the mountains. And it's just a really nice, different, calming vibe. Cynthia, what's on your list outside of Seoul? I'm going to be extra controversial and say that I think everyone who's able to should visit the DMZ, the demilitarized zone between Mm -hmm. North and South. And everyone is, I mean, okay, so I've been here a lot, right? So usually I get asked, is it safe? Like, aren't people constantly freaking out in Seoul? And um, no, the answer is no. Like, this is what they live with on a daily basis. It's fine. And I usually say that the barometer for if you should be worried or not, is if the DMZ tours are still running. And if they are, it's cool. Go on them. And I went on the one that's organized by the USO, which you just need a passport that's not, you can't go if you're South Korean. 
on this tour at least. So you need to have a passport that's not South Korean. And uh, it's they take you on a tour bus and they show you, you know, all along the road. It's the beware landmine signs. But then you can also see things like the uh, putting, the golf putting hole that's like in North Korea. <laughs> But, like, if you stand and putt, you're in South Korea. But if you actually get a hole in one, it's in North Korea. <laughs> those are all, you know, those are, like, the fun little military quirks that they have going. There's a gift shop. Like, <laughs> what's the military? But, do you think? What's the military presence hmm? when you're doing a tour like that? What do you, what do you oh, see? Oh, very heavy. Very heavy. They're everywhere. And uh, the thing is, you can take photos with them. Just don't bother them. And don't be stupid. Listen to all of the the warnings like if there's a line painted on the ground that says no photos beyond this line put your camera away before you step over that line because the north koreans are always watching you don't know what's going to happen if you you know go outside the bounds i will say something there was a there was a survey that came out this week from fo watchdog that talked to people about whether they were nervous about going to south korea and 49% of the thousand travelers they spoke to said they were. And I think it's really easy to just dismiss anxiety around that. And it's it's very, it's always reassuring when someone like you talks about it. But I think people are afraid. I think it, there, there is a sense of, we've heard, you know, Americans can't go to North Korea very easily anymore because of lots of factors and those the awful things that have been happening. And I think it, we have to take a deep breath and say, yes, it is okay to go, but we understand why you're nervous. I must admit, you know, I, it gave me a little bit of pause when I was thinking about being assigned over there. And I thought, oh, you know, do I want to be in that zone at that, at that time when things are a little, little tense? Right. I get, I've been getting that question before leaving for here is, oh, you're going to the Olympics. Aren't you afraid of nuclear annihilation? And <laughs> the answer is, <laughs> I've been here before. I kind of know that's the problem is, you know, people who've never been here don't understand the tone that's kind of um, ever present in Seoul is everyone's aware of what's going on, but you live with it. It's just, it's in our headlines a lot now in the States, right? So we're hyper aware of the tension right now. Have you read, I will say there's an amazing book, it's one of my favorite nonfiction books, it's called Nothing to Envy, Ordinary Lives in North Korea by the LA Times uh, journalist Barbara Demick, and she interviews a lot of defectors, and I found that one of the most illuminating books I've ever read about this kind of, this hermit kingdom, and it also gave me, it, it, I found it much more reassuring. Have you read, have you read that, Cynthia? I have not. I know exactly the book that you're talking about, and I, that would have been perfect to bring on my flight here, but no, I haven't. <laughs> well, it's it's really worth I, I would encourage anyone who wants to learn about that part of Korean culture. Nothing to Envy is a fantastic piece of journalism and also not hysteria-inducing at all. It's It's very pragmatic and quite sad, to be honest. It reminds us to kind of reposition from fear to sadness about how grueling life is in North Korea rather than how scared we might be. Well, I feel like we can't end it there. I got to have, let's, <laughs> we got, we gotta, that's too, that's too depressing. We have to have, what is one more place that we could call out that's worth visiting in South Korea that's outside of the, the Seoul area and the DMZ? Sure. Uh, everybody likes to eat. Everybody travels for food these days. And it is said that the region called Jola, and I might be mispronouncing that, it's J-E-O-L-L-A, transliterated, uh, is the best place for food in all of South Korea. So that's the place where bibimbap comes from. That is the place where, I don't know if... Uh, any of you, I'm sure some of you have heard of the sort of celebrity, pseudo-celebrity nun 
called Jung Kwan. She is the pseudo celebrity nun, friend with Eric Repair, and she will cook you the best version of temple cuisine. I have to say, she actually did cook for me at Le Bernardin in New York not that long ago. Really? <laughs> yeah. Just for you? Or like no, she was doing it a was guest? not just for me. There are other people there as well, of course. Um, and it was really, really fascinating. And she's sort of spearheading, or, or she's become the accidental leader, I should say, of this food movement, which is temple food, which is a completely clean way of eating as you can imagine um, all fruits and vegetables mostly raw uh, it's really interesting it's a very interesting cuisine but is this the it, one where there's no salt there's no there's, there's, there's no, no nothing yeah no seasoning nothing to adorn the food nothing to manipulate the food and it's more than just bringing out the best natural flavor in the food I mean there's a whole sort of philosophy around it that I am certainly not in a position to talk about but the best version of that is in Jola province. But also if you don't want the sort of lotus root floating in a bowl of water, which is what it sort of is, uh, bibimbap, you know. And people would travel for bibimbap. And this is the birthplace of bibimbap. And that area is about two hours directly south from Seoul. And it was known for decades as the breadbasket of South Korea because it's on the coast, but it also stretches quite far inland. So you get a lot of seafood. It grows a ton of rice. It has a ton of produce. And if you base yourself in the main city, it ha the main city has something like 2,000 homes that are 700 years old or something. It's very, very beautiful and very traditional. And it's just a, a really nice sort of traditional counterpoint to what you get in Seoul. And what's the name again? Jola. Jola. Mm -hmm. Okay. That is a good place to end <laughs> with the birthplace of bibimbap. <laughs> Um, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to bring it down. I just no, 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 no. It's, it's no, fine. no. I didn't mean it for that. It's real. It's just you know we want to send people into the weekend dreaming about bibimbap, right? And I am now. I mean, I couldn't. I wish. I mean, I've literally eaten one fist, and I only have one more. <laughs> um, okay. Thanks to all of you guys for talking about this. This is terrific. I really would love to go. Um, I hope that people in the audience who haven't been are contemplating a trip because it seems terrific. And those of you who have been, please let us know what you love about South Korea and Seoul and Pyeongchang if you've been there. Um, what are your Olympic dreams? Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. We are on iTunes. We are on SoundCloud. Visit us at seeandtraveler.com where we have a whole bunch of pieces that we've just put up in honor of the Olympics and travel to South Korea. Aaron wrote like half that stuff and edited the other half. <laughs> and you've just heard the short you version just heard, yeah, podcast. He's just like, but, you know, there's more detail there. I think there's a great 72-hour guide to Seoul that I thought was terrific and seems like a, a really good blueprint for how to spend uh, a very limited amount of time in the city and get a lot out of it. The Women Who Travel podcast is on hiatus until March. So tune back in. I, I'm not going to scold you until that starts up again, but I look forward to that. We are also at Condé Nast Traveler on Facebook and YouTube and CN Traveler on Instagram and Twitter. Please tweet at us and send us feedback. Um, I think there were maybe 35% fewer likes and ums and kindas on this episode, so that's good. I don't know how many, how much bad language there was, but this was a less millennial travelogue than many uh, travelogues. Mark, how can people get in touch with you? They can get in touch with me as they, they do a great deal, which I love, uh, on Twitter at Mark J. Elwood, uh, two L's, Mark with a K. And uh, please keep your eye out because I will be reporting live from South Korea uh, between the 14th and the 25th of February on all of Condé's uh, Nas Travelers channels and on TV. So please, if you're listening in, in real time, 
uh, please tune in for all that and you'll watch me kind of platform my way around South Korea. And you're doing the, is it the Today Show? I am. I'm doing I'm doing four or five segments for to the Today Show about everything from what to eat to what to buy to where to go. Um, so you'll be able to tune in. Those will, those will be on about 8.45, I think, four, night, four of, the, of the mornings America time. But it'll be almost midnight for me. So put Mark on your dial and get up to watch yes. him uh, guide you around mm -hmm. um, Pyeongchang. <laughs> Cynthia, how can folks get in touch with you? I'm on Instagram and Twitter and even Snapchat. <laughs> That's kind of the behind the scenes. At um, My handle is at JetSetCD. And although I'm leaving Korea here on Sunday, I'm going on to Bali for that friend of a friend's wedding. And then Laos and Kuala Lumpur before heading back to the States. So hop on Instagram and follow Cynthia there um, because you get to see all those amazing places. Erin, um, how can people get in touch with you? I'm Erin underscore Florio on Instagram. And I'm at Bradrick. Have a great weekend, everyone. Enjoy the Olympics.